I want to look at something Jesus said. It's in Matthew chapter 22. The Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They were the Pharisees' rivals. Uh, with this reply. So they met together to question him, and one of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Like the greatest teacher with the greatest understanding of the Old Testament. You're like, oh, it's all about these two things. Jesus says the most important thing in your life, in your life, is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, with every single part of yourself to love God. And what he's basically saying is that I want the foundation of everything you understand yourself to be, to be a lover of God, a lover of him who created all things. And Jesus links this directly to your behaviour. He says, out of the overflow of your love for God should be a love of your neighbour. So it's like with the heart and the soul and the mind and Hebrew thought aren't different parts of you particularly. It's just a, a, th- it's a triple repetition of the deepest part of yourself, love God, and express that love with your body. Express that love with your mouth. Express that love with your eyes. So Jesus then comes to the major issue that he has with the Pharisees. And as we hear the major issue that the Pharisees have, if you have ears to hear, ask yourself this question. Do I have the same problem that the Pharisees had? Surrounded by the Pharisees, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, he's the son of David. Jesus responded, then why does David, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, Call the Messiah my Lord. For David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honour at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David called Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? The Pharisees see David, King David from the Old Testament stories, the one who slayed Goliath, as the daddy. Do you remember a few years ago, it was, I think it was like an advert for HP Source or something. He's like, who's the daddy? Do you remember like, it's kind of like, he's the daddy. He's the, he's the one, the overall boss of what they think is good and attractive and right in the world. David sets for them what it means to be good and right. And so when they listen to Jesus... They say, well, Jesus, if you say something that David said, we will accept it. But if you say something that goes against what David said, we will reject it. So actually, what the Pharisees are saying is that David is the daddy, and Jesus, you're just one of the people who will help us follow David and understand David more clearly. Does that make sense? And then Jesus says, well, who's the daddy's daddy? 
Who's the daddy's daddy? Because this guy who you said defines what it is to be good, this guy who defines in your mind what it is to be right, to live a good life, he said he had a daddy. He said he looked to somebody who was his lord. Who was that? And Jesus says, I'm the daddy. I'm the one who even David looked to to determine what was good, what was right, what was attractive, what I should do with my life. Okay, stick with me. So let me ask you a question. Who is your daddy? Who's your daddy? Just turn to the person next to you. In in the best version of that voice you can get, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Sociologists tell us that we in the West have a way of life that we're discipled in from birth. Now, you may not have grown up in the West, and if you didn't, you're just seeing this as somebody who's come into the West. Later on in life, you're looking in and thinking, and this this explains it to you, but if you grew up in the West, you probably don't realise this is what you've been discipled in from birth. From the moment you're born. They call it now three things. A culture of expression. That you nurture yourself through consumption. And the point of your life is self-actualization. Let me just explain these three things to you. The most important thing is for you to express yourself. Express yourself. That's the most foundational understanding of the West. And then that you use things, you consume those things to help yourself become that person who you know you are. And that if you get that all right, you eventually live into a place that we call self-actualization. Let me give you an example. I set my goals. I define my identity. I define my sexual identity. I'm a player. I'm a married person. I'm gay. I define my financial identity. I'm rich, man. I'm poor. I've come from a poor background. I'm working class. I'm middle class. We define our identity on our work. I'm intelligent. I work hard. I'm a, mir- I'm a, I'm a millionaire in the making. I'm, a cele- I'm, I'm an Instagram influencer in the making. This is who I am. I define who I am. I look inside myself. And then life is about me expressing that. And so what I do is I pop to Asta or Waitrose and I buy either vegan food or the latest microwave meal. And I feed myself. I go onto Netflix and I choose the programs that feed me and help me feel good. I might like, uh, I might like to sleep a lot or a little depending on what's going to help nurture me. And I consume these things. I consume online content that might educate me about the latest trends. Or they might educate me about a particular skill that I want to get so that I can become who I know I want to be. I might consume uh, relationships. Or I might, as many increasingly do, consume porn. Or consume marriage. Or consume people that nourishes me. The question is, is this good for me? If you are going to make me feel good and help me feel nourished and help me feel like I can be who I should be, then I consume you. I, I say yes. But if you don't, then I say no. And so each of us finds a way of life 
That is, I want to find the job that enables me to be who I really am. To find the clothes, the, way, the things I wear that enables me to show people who I really am. We find uh, the self-image and the, way we, the language, even the accent that we use to show who we really are. And if we get all of that right, I can live my best life. And we see increasingly they're living their best life. They're living their best life. They've got it. They're living their best right. This is called expressive individualism. And if you look at even the news over the last few days, uh, you realise that the ability for me to choose and to express myself is the primary thing that most people in this world now care about. The most significant political debates are about choice. I should be free to choose what I want to choose. Now this is just what we're trained in from birth. This is who we understand we are. And Jesus wants to ask you, where does he fit into this for you? Now, if you're not a Christian, which we hope there's some of you here who are not Christians, we want you here, we want you to feel at home here, and we want you to feel like you can explore what it is to be a Christian in this room, without pressure, without feeling like you're, no, no, be here. Just listen. If you are a Christian, what Jesus wants to ask you is, is he one of the things that you consume in order for you to become who you want to be? Or has Jesus become your king, your lord, the one who tells you who he wants you to be, and then you seek to live that? Let's have a look at this. History shows us people are incredibly resistant to changing their daddy. History tells us people are incredibly resistant to swapping out who they think their desires and goals they think they want, their daddy. The Pharisees had David as their daddy. God himself, God himself empowered with all miracles, all wisdom, all love was right in front of their eyes, but they would not change their daddy. What did they do with him? They sent him to the cross. And history tells us that over and over again, we are extremely resistant to any fundamental change as to who's the king of our hearts. We are, perhaps many of us, let me just give you an illustration of this, uh, the East India Trading Company. Has anybody heard of the East India Trading Company? The East India Trading Company. The East India Trading Company in 1757 probably ruled over a third of the planet. They were, if you think Google and Apple are big companies, the estimate is that in its day, the East India Trading Company was a hundred times bigger than any individual company that there exists in the planet today in terms of influence, in terms of how the proportion of global trade that it had. And if you went to the East India Trading Company and say, do you have Indians present? in your company, they would say, what are you talking about? The word India is in the name of our company. Indians are present in every single one of our meetings. We, uh, we, we love Indians. Of course we have Indians present in our company. Now, the Indians who were present in their company were punkawallas often, 
Punkawalla, just say back that, it's one of my favourite words, Punkawalla. Punkawalla. A Punkawalla was somebody who sat in the corner of a room and in before the days of air conditioning, they would pull on a rope. And they would pull on the rope that would connect up to something on the top of the room, you can see it on the side there, which would move a fan forwards and backwards to bring cool or at least moving air to the British people who were sat in India pursuing their goals and their plans. And the, what happened was the East India Trading Company would say, Punkawalla, sit in the corner and comfort us as we pursue our agenda. Indian, sit in the corner and comfort us as we pursue our agenda. In 1757, the East India Trading Company was one of the largest entities in the entire world. Just 120 years later, it didn't exist. It didn't exist. 1874. Google, probably one of the, if not the biggest, I never quite know the latest, but if not the biggest, one of the largest companies in the world. Do they have Indians present in their company? Would you know what they did? This guy on your left here is a guy called Sundar Pichai. He was born in Madurai, India. He was employed by Google in 2004, not as a punkawalla to sit in the corner of the room and put on a rope, not speak, not say anything, not be involved, just to bring comfort to the people who are making decisions, but as somebody entrusted with a voice and authority. He oversaw in his first few years the production of Google Chrome. A few years later, he oversaw the production of Google Drive. Then he discovered Gmail would be a good thing. He brought in Google Maps. Finally, he invented or oversaw the invention of Chromebook. And finally, he also came up with the idea of Android phones. In 2015, Google made him their CEO. His genius rewrote how Google thought about themselves and what they did with their whole understanding of what it is to be a company. Is Jesus your punkawalla or is he your pitcher? Is Jesus somebody who you pursue your goals and you say, Jesus, sit in the corner and would you just comfort me? I need somebody to pray for me today. I just feel a bit guilty about this stuff I've been doing. I just want Jesus, you to give me a bit of strength and comfort because I'm feeling like I'm just low on energy. Would you give me, Jesus, just some comfort? Don't say anything. Don't try and change what I'm doing with my life, Jesus. Sit there, be quiet and pull the rope. Give me comfort. Would somebody pray for me? Or is Jesus your pitch eye, the man of incredible genius? Imagine if they just, imagine all these punkawallas, they were brilliant, genius, like just every Indian I've met, really hardworking, intelligent, devoted people. Jesus is the greatest genius who's ever lived. He wants you to give him a voice and authority that he would come into your life and say, let's do this differently. Let's change, listen to me, let me show you a new way of doing things that is better. Is Jesus your punkawalla or is he you, your pitchai? My plea to you is don't be like the East India Trading Company. Flourish for a while, 
and then dive out. Be more like Google. That's probably the only time I'll ever say that in my whole life. <laughs> Give Jesus the authority to become the boss of everything you're pursuing, of all your goals and all your agendas. If you do that, his genius, his wisdom, his understanding flow into your being and you adopt a way of life that brings light and not darkness. How do you do this? Two or three parts of your body I want to speak to you about. Jesus says, there's two ways to live. You can pursue you trying to be you, your self-actualization. You consume Jesus stuff. Oh, I need to just get my verse from the day. It's going to encourage me today. Oh, I just need to get somebody to pray for me. Oh, by the way, what's, what's on Netflix? Let me just get this. Let me just go get my... I consume stuff and I'll get self-actualization. That's the way of the West. And you've been discipling that from birth. You've been discipling that from birth. Or you can pursue the Jesus way. I worship Jesus. I nurture his church. And I am nurtured, not through the products I consume, but I'm nurtured by the church that Jesus puts me in. By the people whose lives, by the gifts of the Spirit, by who he is, coming and feeding me. I may survive with the food I eat. I may survive with the stuff I consume. But who I'm nurtured by, is the, the church family that Jesus puts me on. And I live my life to love Croydon, to love the people in my geography, my neighbours, my nations, the people who are around me. That's the way of Jesus. And what Jesus says is that the way you move him from just somebody you consume in order for you to self-actualise to somebody who you worship is... Click. thankfulness and first fruits. Jesus says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Just listen to that. Your eyes. Your eyes determine whether you have light in your whole body or dark in your whole body. Your eyes, what you look at and how you look determines how you are. If any of you feel any darkness inside of you, change what you look at and change how you look at it. That's what Jesus says. Let me ask you a question. Do you look at people as commodities to satisfy you and nurture you to achieve what you want to achieve in your life. In the 1900, early 1900s, there was a guy called Sigmund Freud. Who's heard of Sigmund Freud? He is considered to be the maker of the modern mind. Now, Sigmund Freud, his ideas, psychotherapy, his understanding of humans, it is considered to be the predominant understanding we now have about who humans are and how we work. And one of the primary things he said was, you have sexual needs and sexual desires deep within yourself. And what you must do in your life is, is meet those sexual needs. So what your goal is in life is to go around and find yourself a partner who works for you. 
Go and find people who, through whom you can fulfill your sexual needs. So what he actively encouraged people to do, and it was brought into by the sexual revolution, was go find people you can use as commodities to satisfy your sexual desires. Jesus says this, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. He says this, at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will be one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. God says with you, Jesus says, with your eyes you see that you give sex to people as a gift to them to nurture them and to build them up. You don't use sexual desires for you to gratify your pleasure. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not, you don't look at a person to think, hey, I like the look of you. Or, you know, I want you to come and satisfy my desires. It's, it's totally the opposite. You don't look at people to think, how can you please me? I look at people to think, can I enable you to live up to the image of God that God has put in you? And Jesus says that the place that you use sexual intercourse for that is in the context of a male-female marriage, where you don't use it for, I'm feeling randy, let's have a quickie tonight, but you use it for, I want to build up and strengthen the image of God that is in you. That's what he says it's for. It's not for, hey, I fancy it. No, no, it's for, I want to give to you something that affirms and builds up the image of God in you. And so, thankfulness, listen again, this is what it is to be a Christian, to have Jesus as your boss and your CEO, not just as a punkawalla in the corner of your room, is to trust him when he says to us, and to honour him and worship him, when he says, this is the way you use your eyes. You don't use your eyes to scroll through websites to find the latest image of some naked female or male who gratifies you. You don't use your eyes to look around a room and think, oh, who looks good here? Who could please me? That's, that's not how you use your eyes. If that's how you use your eyes, Jesus says, first of all, cut out your eyes. Stop looking. Stop looking. So if you're in a relationship with somebody where you're having sex with them and you're not in the context of a covenant relationship of male-female marriage, what you are doing, actually Jesus says, is you're undermining the image of God in them when you have sex with them. And he wants you to build up the image of God in them. And so use your eyes instead to look how can I affirm and build up this person? How can I honour the God who made this person through the way that I treat them? Through the way I even look at them? First of all, stop. And then Jesus says, you see, Jesus isn't just about stopping things. He's always about, but let's fill you with goodness and light. He says, turn your eyes to the eyes of faith and of worship. He says this. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or weep. Look at the birds of the air. Choose to use your eyes to look at the world that God has made 
and understand God's character through it. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? Solomon, let's see the flowers. They don't labour or spin. No longer look at the world to think, who can help me achieve my goals? Look at the world to think, wow, there's a God who loves me so much, who cares for even the flowers. This turns you from a consumer into a grateful and secure son or daughter of the one who made all things. You begin to look at and think, wow, God, you not only put me in this, but you entrusted me to live with free will in this place. It forward when you look with those things, at those things, when you choose to see people as people you can honour and bless, not that you can use to achieve your own goals, you begin to forge in yourself a culture of worship. Jesus becomes your pichai, not your pungawala. This is the reality of the choice you have in your life. And Jesus lets you have this choice. And it's just really clear. You can sit here in this room. We're not coming, you know, we're not going to come and say, hey, you can't be in this room. You can be in this room. But this is, the, this is where it really counts. Is Jesus your conquer Jesus, just call the rope. Give me some comfort. Let me do what I think's best. Let me do what I want to do. Or is he the one you're going to put as your CEO that will cause your life to thrive and do well, drawing on his wisdom and his greatness. So when you do that and you see how great God is, how much he loves you, how much he's for you, you go back to people not to consume them, but to honour them and to love them. And this is even true, you know, this is true of every, every one of us, whether we're married or not married. Will we look at others as people we honour and love? Based on the fact that we already have more than we need. We have more than we need. The second thing we use is our mouth. Jesus talks a lot about our mouth. We know, don't we, that our words can cut people down, can manipulate, can flatter or falsely affirm. We can use our words to try and get people to do what we want them to do so that we can self-actualise. We can get use our words so that if somebody stops us doing what we want to do, we cancel them. Or we turn others against them. Our words, our mouth is hugely important. Jesus says it. The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. The things that you say show what's in your heart and they can defile you. So Jesus says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka which means you fall, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fall will be in danger of the fire of hell. So what does he want us to do with our mouths? He's like, be careful what you do with your mouth. Because what you can do with your mouth is just use it as a tool to consume what you want to consume so you can achieve your goals in your life. And instead, he says, don't swear with oaths, either by heaven for its God's throne, or by the earth for its footstool, or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. Don't swear by your head. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Simple, unmanipulative words 
on what we use our mouth for in the kingdom. It's an expression of gratitude to God. Do we use our words to get people to do what we want them to do? Or do we just state plainly? We can still disagree with people, of course. But do we do it in a way that states simply, this is it, that is it. You can... And then Jesus says, just don't be manipulative with what you say. Again, it's just stop. Just stop. If, if the point of your life is self-expression, you'll say, I just need to be honest right now. I just need to be honest right now. Jesus says, sometimes there's something more important than you just being honest. The most important thing is just to simply say, yes or no. Sometimes you just don't speak. You just don't say it. Because those things could defile you. And then he says, instead of stopping, choose to use your words instead. This then is how you should use your mouth. You say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You speak words of praise and thankfulness to God. When you begin to choose to use your words to speak praise and thankfulness, Jesus becomes not something you consume, but he becomes your boss. Just simple acts of worship and praise and thankfulness. You can do this in a workplace. You you, you don't have to say the name Jesus to speak praise to Jesus. Do you know that? So you can be in any context and you just choose to simply speak words that you believe will honour Jesus. And you can do that when you're discussing whether or not you should take over a company, whether or not you should make somebody redundant, how you're going to respond to a particular customer who's complaining and being really difficult. You can use the words you speak to say, hallowed be your name, even without saying, hallowed be your name. You just know it, don't you? You know it. You say words to say, Jesus, you are great. You are the source of life. I choose to honour you with my words. And when you do this and you choose to cultivate this habit, what you do is you create in yourself a culture of worship. A culture of worship. I would really strongly encourage you to develop a habit each day of speaking or even singing words of thankfulness and worship to Jesus. It changes whether he's somebody who you just consume or whether he is your CEO.